Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. H.E. Schmuel was one of the founders of the Interchurch Holiness Convention back in 1952. And over the next nearly 50 years, his ministry would take him literally around the globe. This sermon was preached at Seabreeze Camp Meeting back in 1993, and in it he asks the question, Why sit we here until we die? I know you're going to enjoy this riveting sermon. Calling your attention to 2 Kings chapter 7 and to one verse of scripture, maybe two. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city. And if we die here, and if we sit here still, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us fall or discover ourselves to the host of the Syrians. And if they save us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we'll but die. Turn around and shake hands, and then be seated, and praise the Lord you're still alive. Amen. All right. Well, you're starting to wake up a little bit. That's good. We're glad to see that. You may be seated. Here in the lesson tonight, we have a picture of ancient warfare. We have a story that tells us about the cruelty of ancient warfare. You know, uh, Sherman said war is hell. If you'd go to Bosnia, Herzegovina, or go to Sarajevo, or some parts of Croatia or Serbia, you'd find out that all that Sherman said about war is true. War is hell, whether it's modern or whether it's ancient. And in this lesson tonight, we have Ben Hadad, king of Syria, is besieging a city in Samaria, and the king is there, and a lot of Israelites are there, and things are going from bad to worse. Things often do go from bad to worse in, uh, in warfare. And uh, they have been surrounded for a long time. That city with its high walls and with its watchmen looking out across the plain can see the distant Syrians encamp. Maybe 85,000 or 185,000, just a lot of them out there. And he sees their horses and their chariots and, uh, and they've been surrounded uh, a long time, and there's not much to eat in the city. As a matter of fact, there hardly is anything to eat in the city. And uh, 
If you look at the lesson a little bit carefully and go through chapter 6 and chapter 7, you'll find out that some of them were eating ass head stew. An ass's head would sell for about 50 bucks. Now, there's not much meat on an ass's head. Did you know that? How many knew there wasn't much meat on an ass's head? Well, that's good. I, I don't know if you've had ass head stew or not, but anybody that'll look at an ass's head can soon tell there, there really isn't too much meat up there. And things got so bad in the city, people were so hungry in the city that uh, an old, I don't know what they got for rump roast or steaks, but they sure got a pretty good price for just the head of the critter. Uh, I never did see a mule that I loved, although my last name comes very close to it. Please don't put any E on there. It's not necessary. But I never did see a mule that I was very much attracted to except for humorous purposes. But uh, they got so hungry in there that after the asses were eaten and after the cats were eaten and after the dogs were eaten and after the rats were eaten, they got down to where there was nothing but an old mule's head. And that head alone was worth 50 bucks if anybody had it. Not only so, but uh, just a little portion of dove's dung. I suppose they made soup out of dove's dung. Some say it was a vegetable that grew, and others said it was the real thing. But whether it was the real thing or whatever it was, uh, that also sold for a pretty good piece of money as well, for about $3 for a certain portion. So they were not eating very high on the hog. Things were pretty bad. Just outside the wall was, of course, the lepers. There were four leprous men outside the wall. Now, lepers couldn't stay in the city ever, no matter whether there were Syrians out there or not. The lepers couldn't stay, out, uh, couldn't stay in the city. They were lepers. They had to stay outside. They would panhandle the crowd as they went out the gate in the morning to trade. And as they came back in the evening with some of their barter out there in the countryside, they'd panhandle the crowd and they'd holler, unclean, unclean, unclean. And folks had tossed them something from a distance because no one even wanted to be caught in their shadow. And so they didn't go in the city. And they didn't know what to do, and they were getting hungry. And they were saying, why do we sit here until we die? Ah, we're getting lean and lank. We're more lean and lank than we used to be. And things are bad in the city, they tell me. As a matter of fact, not only do I do we hear these fellows talking about the asses' heads and the dove dung, they talk about a couple women in there that made a deal. And one woman said, uh, sort of sounds like Herzegovina or Bosnia, sounds like modern-day stuff. Really, not too far off. They said, uh, one woman said, you know, well, I'm so hungry I could eat this kid. And she had a little baby. And the other woman had a little baby. And so these two women looked down at their little babes and they didn't have any milk in their breasts and they didn't have anything to give them. And the kids were wah, 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 crying night and day and they couldn't get any rest. Things were bad. And so they, they struck up a deal and they decided that they'd eat one of them. And so they boiled one of the children. They didn't take much to kill him, just a little... They strangled him and put him out of his misery and then they put him in a pot and they boiled him and they divided his legs, his little legs and his little arms and, his, and uh, they had something to eat. And that probably lasted them a couple of days by the time they were through licking on the bones. But when it came time to eat the other baby, lo and behold, the woman said, I don't know where he's at. I can't find him anywhere. 
And so the woman that had given her child up first to be eaten, and of course she had a few bites herself, she was really upset because there was another kid that could be eaten and now they can't, they can't, this woman says she can't find the kid. And so she complains to the king. The king is walking around the wall. He looks out and he sees four leprous men. And they're fussing among themselves. Why do we sit here until we die? Why don't we do something? Maybe he overhears them as they're talking about the proposition before them and the problem that they have concerning themselves. And this king walking around the wall not only hears the four leprous men, but he also sees this woman. Oh, king, I say, oh, oh, oh boy up there, hey you, uh, I have a complaint to make. And he looks down, and when she looks up, she sees that his royal robe is slipped, and she can see that underneath he has sackcloth, and that he's uh, very much in mourning and deep sorrow over what is happening. And he looks down, and he said, What do you want, woman? And she said, Oh, sir, uh, this woman over here, she and I ate my child, and she uh, has a baby, and we agreed we'd eat her baby next, and, and she's disappeared with that baby, and, and I can't find her, and I can't find the baby anywhere in this town, and it isn't fair. Do something for us. And the king tore his garments and went on his way. Those four fellows outside the gate are still trying to figure out what to do. The Assyrians are over there just a little ways, and Syrians don't like lepers either. They don't like to have those fellows around. They know there's nothing in the city. They know that asshead stew is no longer even available, and the cats and the rats are gone, and people have been turning cannibalistic. They know all of those sad things. There's nothing in that town we want, and there's nothing there. And if we, if we could just get in some way or other, they'd dispatch with us in a hurry. They wouldn't even eat us because we're lepers. On the other hand, they spent time going over the thing back and forth. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Sort of like playing ping pong. I knock it to you, you knock it back to me. The next time around, you know, you knock it to me and I knock it back to you. And it's just back and forth and back and forth. And these, there are four of them. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's two on one side and two on the other side. And sometimes they flop back and forth. And they argued all about what could be done, but they could never agree to do anything. Matter of fact, in desperation, one of them had the sense to say, Why do we sit here until we die? Why don't we do something? If we go over there, there's nothing in the city, there's nothing in the town, and nobody will leave us in there. If the door did open, they'd just knock us in the head, and that'd be the end of that. They wouldn't even eat us. We're lepers. Let's discover ourselves. Let's, uh, to the Syrians. And so... That's eventually what they did, and that's an interesting story in itself. But the real question these lepers raise is a question I want to raise. It's as modern as modern warfare. It's as modern as ancient warfare. It's as modern as all time. It's as modern as people. And uh, you and I, sooner or later, have to pass our judgment on some things. We have to come to some conclusions about something. Is that right? Uh, for instance, let me give you a few of the choices. I wrote down a couple choices here. How many of you would rather have a Yugo or a BMW? Would you, how many want the Yugo? Would you put your hand up? You want a Yugo. How many would rather have a BMW? Look at the hand. Those guys know what they're talking about. How many of you would rather have a diamond or would you rather have a 
dish full of marbles. How many want the dish full of marbles? Put your hand up. You want the marbles, all right? How many would rather have the diamonds? Put your hand up. You'd rather have the diamonds. Look at there. All the hand. Oh, that's, that's the way it goes. Would you rather have the flu or would you rather have HIV? How many would rather have the flu? If you had to make a choice whether you're going to have the flu or HIV, how many would rather have HIV? Do you know what HIV is? How many of you would rather have influenza or have the AIDS? How many would rather have the AIDS? Would you put your hand up? You'd rather have the AIDS. How many would rather have influenza? Well, now, see, you are capable of making decisions, aren't you? And we all have to make decisions every day. There are some things that takes longer than others. Oh, it took me almost... Well, it didn't take me long to make up my mind about the woman I wanted to marry, but it took her quite a while. So... I guess that, uh, that's sort of par for the course, isn't it? Well, anyhow, would you rather have a Corvette or a Chevette, or would you... Oh, you know what you want. You want a Corvette. You don't want a Chevette. Chevettes are a dime a dozen or less, if you can even find one. Corvettes or something else. But, friends, sooner or later we make decisions about dollars and cents and about who we're going to marry, and we also make decisions about heaven and about hell. We make decisions about what we're going to do. And before we walk out of the door tonight, you're going to make some kind of a choice. Whether it's the right one or the wrong one, I will be unable to tell from here. I can't. But I know one thing. Why do we sit here until we die? We're not going to sit here until we die. We're going to sit here for a brief exhortation from God's Word and you're going to make up your mind what you're going to do. Some of you have been debating this question for a long time. You've come to the end of the road, pal. You don't need to debate any longer. You need to make a decision about what you're going to do. You don't need more evidence about heaven. You don't need more evidence about salvation. You don't need more evidence about Jesus. You don't need a better dispensation. You just need to make a decision. And while you may not like that word decision, let me tell you, it is still the fundamental word in Christian theology. We make up our mind. We make decisions for heaven or for hell, for right or for wrong, for Christ or for the devil. Amen. Let me go quickly here. What are you waiting for? Well, maybe you're waiting for a better disposition. Maybe you're waiting for a better dispensation. Maybe you're waiting for a better sacrifice or a better opportunity. Maybe you're waiting for your husband. Don't wait on that old bird. It takes some of those guys a long time, and then they don't have the guts to make up their mind to serve God. They're probably waiting on you, honey, to step out and give your heart to God and serve Him no matter what He does about it. Amen? Some of you little old hank of hair and rack of bones just need to step out and say, Honey, would you go with me to the mourner's bench? Would, I believe it's time we start raising our family for God in heaven. Would you go, dear? And that great big old hulk will be real tough and he'll look and he'll look down his nose and he'll say, Well, religion's for old women and little girls like you and if you want to go, well, it's all right with me, but uh, count me out. Go ahead, sister, even if he frowns. You give your heart to God. You walk in the light. That bozo will come around sooner or later. It may be later. It may be quite a while before he wakes up. But eventually he will come around and know what a fool he really has been. 
Or it could be that it's some man out there who has the gumption to be the head of the family and he's made up his mind that by the grace of God, whether this, whether this little flippant thing wants to take the old-fashioned way or not, whether this little gal here weighs about 97 pounds dripping wet wants to go with God or not, I'm going to go with God. I'll be the head of the house. I'll be the head of my family. I'll set up a family altar. We'll have family devotions. We'll ask God's blessing on the meal. There might even be a man that has that kind of guts. That's intestinal fortitude for those that are more squeamish. But while you are waiting, you need to think. You need to think about the power of your unsaved influence. No man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. And you need to think about your unconverted, unregenerate influence. Especially you parents need to think about it. Mom and dad, you need to take a long, hard look at your influence. Look at that boy. Look at that little gal with the long pigtail. Look at that son or daughter of yours. They're yours. You brought them into the world. And you're dilly-dallying around about this matter of your soul's salvation. You need to fish or cut bait. You need to walk in the light or, or, or walk in the darkness. But you better make up your mind. You can't have it both ways. While they're growing up, you're ungodly. You're unregenerate. You're unsanctified. Influence is molding and shaping their mind and heart for eternity, for an eternal hell. Think. Think about your unsaved influence on your friend, teen leader. Some of you teenagers way back there, my pals, some of my buddies way back there, your macho guys. I sometimes see you walking and you walk with such a lovely stride and your muscles are bulging and you wear the power shirts and the power outfit and you want us to know you're full of power. I say you're full of baloney. I say you don't have, a, you don't have the intestinal fortitude to set out and serve God. You've got a backbone made out of sawdust. You don't have the kind of stuff it takes to step out. And while you're so tough, pal, while you're out there being such a macho guy, just think what your damnable, unsaved, unregenerate influence is doing on those who are around you. And silly enough to think you really are something after all. Now, if I've offended you, meet me out back at the close of the service tonight and we'll just sort of take it up, especially if I can run fast. Think about sin's effects upon your body. Just think. T-H-I-N-K. That, that used to spell think. I don't know what it spells today. But it's, it used to mean put your head on. Screw your head on straight and think long and think hard and think fast and think about eternity and wonder why are we sitting here until we die? Why aren't we doing something? Think about sin's effects upon your body. Think about what's going to happen, shooting this stuff in your arm, drinking this stuff and putting it into your system, laying around in somebody's shack or somebody's shanty, living it up in big time, jigging around till the early morning of the hour, speeding down the highway with somebody else's car or with your own. You need to take a long, hard think about these things and what it's doing to your eyes and what it's doing to what little minds you do have left and what it's doing to you. You but need to wake up. Wake up before it's too late. 
Why are you sitting around debating salvation? You know better than what you're doing. You know the word. You know the why. You know salvation. You know there's deliverance for you. Amen. Don't sit around thinking sin is too strong. Don't sit around thinking I can't break loose. Now that's a fairy tale the devil is spinning for everyone. By the help of God, by the grace of God, like these poor old leprous guys that couldn't see any way out, if you'll make a move for God, you'll find out that God in heaven is making moves that'll take care of the Assyrians. He's making moves that'll take care of the opposition. And before you know it, the way will be clear. But you got to start moving first. And some of you don't have the gumption to do it. You don't have the guts to make a move. You couldn't get your little piggy right down the aisle and come. I know it's quite a ways to the back door, but I hope to God before this meeting is over that some boys or girls or some young men or women will take the long, long, long walk down the aisle to the mourner's bench of the place of prayer. I hope you have to come along. Oh, it'd be nice if someone would sort of come along with you. But I hope you have the kind of guts it takes to make the move alone if you really have to. And while you're waiting, you need to think about the devil's strategy. Hey, dummy, while you're taking all this time, the devil's got a strategy. Sometimes I think about the prodigal son and how proud the devil must have been when the prodigal son took his substance and he went to the far country and lived and lived it up over there. Devil must have been pretty happy about it. When the devil sees some of you people making a mess out of your life with your money, some of you are getting into money problems that will take you years to ever get out of. Some of you are in money problems already. But I tell you what, if you'll make your way to God, if you'll start trying to serve God, it's amazing how the Lord will help you straighten out the money affairs in your life and get things looking right. Maybe you need to see the devil's strategy when it comes to marriage. Some of you beautiful young ladies out there are all entranced by some guy with uh, kinky teeth and curly hair and, and some guy that has bulging muscles and some big old hunk of something or other who still doesn't have enough, I'm sorry, intelligence. That's the word I'm reaching for. He doesn't have enough gumption. He doesn't have enough intelligence. He can't think far enough to see that what he's doing and where he's going will lead both of you into a hell on earth. A lot of young men tonight, a lot of young women tonight, can't blame their problem on anybody else but themselves. I had a young lady tell me some years ago, though her father and her mother advised her against the marriage, it, was, it wasn't really all that bad. It just wasn't in the will of God. And she said, well, she said, I, I just can't live with him anymore. I can't live with him anymore. I said, at the time you wanted to get married, your parents advised you against it. I know they did. <laughs> I know they did. I know they did. I know they didn't. She bawled and cried. I said, you wouldn't have been happy if you couldn't have had him, would you? No, I wouldn't. I said, now you've got him, and now you want to get rid of him. Now you want to unload him in a sanctified way, of course, you know, if there is such a way. She'd like to put him aside nicely, just lay him back in a nice, quiet way. Maybe be neat if God had just kill him, take him out of the way. But God isn't in the business of straightening out your problems by knocking somebody off. 
The devil has a strategy in getting some people messed up in their marriage. The poor young people don't have sense enough to see it. The devil is back of all the machinations that are pushing you, you rosy-cheeked, lovely little something. The devil is back there shoving you into, uh, into sex without marriage. He's shoving you into medicine. He's shoving you into drugs. He's shoving you into the night spots. Shoving you in the back end of a car. Shoving you to the hot spots. The devil's in the process of ruining your life by getting you married off to somebody that has no business in your life and has no business in your future. And I don't know whether anyone's listening to me or not, but my dear friend, I hope you quit acting like a zombie and you start acting intelligent and you take a good, long, hard look. That curly-haired macho thing or that beautiful little hank of hair and rack of bones, that lovely, sweet little brunette or that bumbling blonde or whatever it may be, you better take a long look. It's going to be a long, long winter, pal, living with her. Amen. Amen. Time to make up your mind about something. Why do we sit here until we die? Why don't we do something? I tell you why. Because the devil has a strategy. A lot of times it involves sex out of marriage. It involves sex in the back of a car. It involves sex down at the beach. It involves sex over here in a shack somewhere. It involves some secret trysting places. It invo- Is anybody listening to this old man? It's about time. I had a big compliment paid to me today. Someone said to me, said, Brother Smool, you talk our language. You talk relevant. Well, I don't know how to talk any other talk. It's the only talk I know anything about. The only talk, I, this theological jargon will never do the, do the job. All this highfalutin stuff that comes out of theological journals is never going to get the job done. You and I need to understand we're in the real world. And you're on, a, on your way to a real hell and a real heaven. And you've got to make some real choices. And they're not pretty and they're not easy and they're not fancy. And they're not run through a computer. It's not all set up for you. You're going to be your own computer. You're going to make your own choices. You're going to make your own decisions, then why let the devil use hellish, devilish strategy to get you where you never want to be, where you've been taught it was always wrong to be. The devil's strategy, if he can't get people messed up in money or marriages or or sex outside of wedlock, he tries to get them messed up with a bitter attitude or a hateful attitude or a cynical disposition. And people get cynical and bitter and hateful about it all. The church has hypocrites. Of course the church has hypocrites. We've always had hypocrites. Jesus had hypocrites. The apostle Paul was bothered by a guy by the name of Demas who apparently had been a pretty good hypocrite. There's a lot of good hypocrites. I can't clean the church of hypocrites. Nobody else can clean the church of hypocrites. We turn them to God. I let God deal with them. He knows how to help them. He can even get them saved. He can even get them converted. Oh, yes, he can. That includes you. The devil's strategy is at least to get you bewildered. Think about it. Think of it. While you're waiting, while you're waiting to make up your mind whether you should fish or cut bait, whether you should discover yourself to the Syrians or do something else while you're waiting. The devil's getting you bewildered, getting you confused about money or marriage or, or getting you bitter about something and you're getting your mind all shook up. 
But I hurry on because I, I don't want to keep you long tonight. I want to get you out of here and I want to get you at this altar. I want people to thank God tonight. And I don't want you going out of here fussing, saying, well, if he'd have let us out of here, and you're going to get out in time, pal, but you're going to have to make up your mind before you go. What happens when I wait too long? Well, your desire for God begins to die. You get calloused. I used to think God got hard of hearing. People said, well, people don't hear the voice of God anymore. And so I decided God had laryngitis. I decided that something must be wrong with God's voice. It wasn't God's voice at all. It was calloused ears. It was ears that would not hear. It was people who had a callous in their ear. They, the God used to speak. God used to deal with them. They were one time quick to hear the voice of the Spirit. And little by little, they've gone to holiness meetings and holiness services and revival meetings, and they've heard the voice of God. And the one, the voice that one day made them shiver and made them shake and made them tremble, now they can sing through almost persuaded. And they can look over and wink at their girlfriend or they can count their money and see if they've got enough for a hot dog and a hamburg. And they can say, I hope he lets us out of here pretty quick. I'm getting tired of this. I wonder if my old man's got his eye on me. I wonder if my mother sees what I'm doing over here. Honey, let's slip out this side door while no one's watching. And that's, you know, that's how it goes. But there was a day when you'd sing those simple gospel songs and people would tremble. They would tremble. They would be disturbed. Teenagers would be disturbed. But now your desire for God is less and less. As a matter of fact, that's what happened to the prodigal son. He came to himself. He acted on his will. He wasn't acting on his emotions. He wasn't acting on how he felt. He was acting on what he knew. My father's servants have far more than I have. My father's house is a good place to go. I've been a fool. I've spent my money in riotous living. I will say, I will go to my father and I will say, I have sinned. That's what he did. That's what some people are going to have to do tonight. There are people here tonight who will never tremble again, who will never shiver again, who will never shake, who will never quake under conviction. Some of you will never even feel conviction again in your heart. You say, well, when I feel conviction, I'll come to the altar. You're not going to try that and get that pinned on God. God is not responsible for your calloused heart. You're responsible for your calloused heart. And if you don't have conviction, you're responsible for no lack, for your lack of conviction. It's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have laryngitis. It's your stubborn will that's killed and calloused your heart. And you'll have to act on what you know. You'll have to say, like the prodigal son, I, I am wrong. I, I've done the wrong thing. And I'll go to that mourner's bench and I'll say, oh, God, forgive me. I don't feel it in my heart, but oh, God, forgive me. Lord, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to say goodbye. Lord, help me. You'll find out there's a lot of people that will help you. What happens when I wait too long? Your will weakens. And paralysis, sort of a paralysis sets in. Let me illustrate. There are people in the sound of my voice tonight that have tried again and again and again to serve God. You've tried and you've flunked and you've flunked and failed and failed and flunked. And you're tired of trying. And you've waited a long while, probably because you didn't really mean business when you did get here. Or because there were some other distractions. I'm not going to lay the blame all on you. But if you're here suffering of the will, you need to ask God to help you 
in the realm of your will. Lord, I will come home. I will say I have played the fool. I will, I will. Some time ago I read about a... I've read several times, not just some time ago. I've read several times about great football stars and pro football players uh, that uh, would have, we'll say, a tumor on the brain. We had one down there in Pittsburgh just, uh, oh, about three, four years ago now. Uh, the first time he noticed that uh, he was, was he stumbled on uh, the street. As he was crossing the street, he stumbled a little, lost his balance and picked himself up. He was one of the Steelers. He was part of the Iron Curtain, you know. Great, robust, powerful fellow. But then he went on the field. And they practiced. And then he went into a real game. And, and they butted heads in the, and back and forth and back and forth. And something happened in the game. Something happened on the field. And they carried him out. Nobody knew it was the last time they were going to carry him out. But it was. No, it wasn't dead. He was on his way to the hospital. And a few days later they would find a huge tumor that little by little had made its web and its fibers in his mind. And now his speech was slurred and his steps were stumbling steps. And now he could no longer walk. And a few days later, a few weeks later to be more accurate, he slipped away, passed away. And that's exactly, my friend, what happens again and again. Down in the human heart there is a paralysis that takes place. There is a spiritual numbing of the mind and the will to do the will of God. And people want to. They have a urge to, I'd like to play again. The stealer would say, I'd like to be in the Iron Curtain again. But something happened. Something happened over which he had no control. And some things are happening in the hearts and minds of young men and women here tonight. And so there's a little something going to work, and that's rebellion. There's a little something going to work in hearts and minds, and that's rejection of God. And that's the disposition that they cannot make up their mind. They're not sure whether they can or they can't. And they've been sometimes, some of these people have been at the owner at times, and they couldn't. Let me tell you, friends, do a real good job of repenting, just real good. Just one more time, renounce the world and the flesh and the devil, and mean it from the bottom of your heart. You're not so weak, need, but what you can say, get saved. Sin is not so strong, but what you can be delivered. That's a lot of nonsense. I can't get saved because sin is too strong. Take a look at him who's hanging on the tree in agony and blood. Take a look at the fountain that is filled with blood for sin and uncleanness. And you'll find that no matter how deep your sin and how agonized you are in your soul and how far you are away from God, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. And the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And that have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. You're not too bad. You're not too far. You haven't gone so far. But what God can reach you right where you are. Amen. In closing, how long will you wait? Will you wait till some tragedy strikes? Are you going to wait until God does something or... Nature or the environment or the, does something in such a dramatic fashion that it gets your attention? Like a poor fellow I met at Frankfurt camp many years ago, walking 
off from the platform following a huge altar service walking there. A fellow turned his face up toward me. It was no face at all. There was no eye on one side, not much of a nose for on his face. And he held up a thing. It wasn't a hand at all. It was a stub. And there was one little pinky over here and there was a thumb over there. And he held it up and he had nothing on the other hand. And he looked at me and he said, Preacher, look at me. And I didn't want to look. My stomach wasn't too strong and I couldn't take it to. I'd already seen enough. And the top of his head was convoluted with uh, little wrinkles and big blumps and bumps and little sprigs of hair going every which way crazy. And I... I said, yes, sir. He said, preacher, I want you to look at me. And I said, yes, sir. And I looked. I got a hold of myself. I looked down. I didn't like what I saw. He said, three years ago, D.P. Denton was here at this camp. And he preached. And my mother came back and begged me to give my heart to God. And I said, mom, I'm... I'm sorry, but it's not for me. I'm a, I'm a young man. I'm 23. I'm a lineman. I, I, Mom, you don't understand. The guys wouldn't understand. That's what he said. But three weeks after that camp meeting was over, he went out to do some work in a flooded condition and stepped on a high-voltage wire and was seriously seared and burned. Eighteen months later now, he's back in camp meeting. And this is what he told me. He said, preacher, holding his finger up there in his hand. Tell them, preacher, tell them, preacher, tell them, warn them, warn them. And so tonight I've got this little story in here because there was a man who waited until tragedy struck. Are you trying to say tragedy is going to strike me? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just asking you, how long are you going to wait? Some people wait till tragedy strikes. Some people wait till death comes, till the death angel comes. Some people wait until the Holy Spirit uh, no longer seems to be dealing with them like he did. And I want to say a word right here. I do believe there is such a sin as crossing the deadline. But I do not think very, I do not think very many people that you and I have met are guilty of it. I've had people search me out, some on this ground and some on other grounds and say, preacher, I think I've crossed the deadline. And I sit down and I talk with them. As long as you're concerned about your soul, as long as you're thinking about eternal things, as long, where do you think the hunger for God is coming from? You think the devil's giving it to you? Do you think that hunger for God is coming out of your natural disposition? No, no, no. That hunger, that interest, that inquiry, that disposition that's causing you to think about heaven and about hell and about God, it's coming from God. It's coming from the Holy Ghost. It's coming from the Scripture. Oh, I probably have no authorization to say this. I probably will have ministerial fellows that will like to meet me out back with the other kids that want to beat me up. But I want to go on record as saying, I don't think there's anyone here tonight that has really crossed the deadline. I'm not saying people can't. I'm simply saying, I don't think there's anyone here that has. I've met them at the altar. My first church, my second church, I had a fellow who said to me, said, Elder, there's no use of calling on me, no use working with me. I've crossed the deadline. So I don't believe it. Well, I have. I said, will you do me a favor? He said, yes, I will. He was an old man. He was 73. He's as old as I am now. He said, uh, I said, will you do me a favor? He said, yes, I will. 
I said, you just come to church. He came, make the story as short as I can. He came two or three times to church. I said, just make me one promise. If you feel any inkling from God about ever getting right, will you come? He said, I'd be a fool. He said, I've sought for 10 years trying to get saved. I don't believe there's any hope. I believe I've crossed the deadline. I said, I don't believe you have. Come. He came. He made three trips. One night he made a bolt out of the, out of his seat and hit the mourner's bench. And the people gathered around and we had a season of prayer. And it was just a matter of minutes. That fellow had a record clear to mansions in the sky. He was qualified to sing with angels and cherubims and seraphims. He was on his way to the celestial city. And he died a few months later, safe in the arms of Jesus. Well, what are you saying? I'm simply saying, friends... Holy Spirit may lift, but basically I don't think anybody here is guilty of it. If you think you are, come down here. I'd like to meet you. Anybody having problems emotionally, come down here. We'd like to pray with you. The Spirit of God is here. And if you come and you don't feel anything in your heart, no conviction of any kind, come on. You come. We'll pray. And if you leave here without... Sensing anything from God, I'll be surprised. Come back again. You start seeking God, and God will start seeking you. Amen. Draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to you. I challenge you. I challenge you. I challenge you. In closing, it could be that you'll wait until you've played the fool. You may be like the one who cried, I played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. Indeed, you have erred exceedingly if you don't do something about your salvation. These leprous men would have erred exceedingly. They made up their mind, Harry, that they're going to do something. We're going to discover ourselves to the Syrians. All the signs were against them. Everything was against them, but it was better than going into the city. And so they got up and they said, well, this makes sense. Let's do something. If they kill us, they kill us. And they went until they came to the early tents, the nearest tents. And they looked about and they saw the horses tied and the asses tied. And they saw the goats feeding. And, and they slipped into a tent and they got inside. And wow, there's nobody here. Look at the goat. Look at the goat meat over there. Look at the, look at the cheese and look at the milk. And they began to sip and to guzzle and to swallow and to choke it down and eating cake and all the other good things. And they went from tent to tent and they had a picnic. They had a big time. They never had. They haven't had anything like this for a long time. They've been unclean and they've been living on refuse and garbage. And now all of a sudden they've got inside the tent. And you know, they went from tent to tent. The Syrians had heard that uh, the Israelites had hired the Egyptians and you know the rest of the story. And the Syrians fled. They dropped their garments and they fled for their life. These three leprous men entered into a real bonanza. They got anything and everything their heart could wish. But there are some people that like the, that could have been like those lepers. Do nothing. And when you do nothing about your soul salvation, you err exceedingly. You play the part of a fool. You're not behaving wisely. You're not behaving intelligently. Amen. Now it ought not to be necessary to give a long, long Invitation to anybody tonight. And with this last thought, I'm closing. I sometimes think I could hear the angels re-echo the cry of Christ. Better were it this this man was never born. Brother Brown, in that day it will be 
There will be men and women who have lost their way in a devil's world, going wandering in the lost, lost world from God, far from God. They've erred exceedingly. They played the fool. It would have been better had they never been born. Better they never had the light of day. Better they never heard a gospel sermon or ever heard a gospel song. Better they were never raised in a Christian home. Better they never attended a holiness school. Better they never had opportunities to get saved. Better, better, better than for you to reject it, to turn aside, to do your own thing, to go on your own way, to play the part of a fool. Why are you sitting here doing nothing about your salvation? Why don't you stand? Why don't you come? Why don't you start running? I told my wife walking across the ground today, I said, I can't understand. I can't understand why people seem to be unconcerned about getting ready. And we're going to come and sing in just a moment, Brother Collingsworth, and I want to sing almost persuaded. But I tell you, while he's coming, I would to God, dear Jesus, I would to God tonight, this is my prayer, that somebody would stand up from right where they're at right now without any singing, without anything else. You stand up where you are and say, I'm not going to die here. I'm not going to lose my soul in Hope Sound Tabernacle. I'm not going to lose my soul in hell. I'm going to make up my mind. I have things I don't know how I'm going to get through, but I'm going to move. And I believe God move on my half. I believe God will do something for me. I believe God will help me. Amen. Amen. I believe God will work on my behalf. Why don't you start coming? There's some, one has come. All that there were others. We're standing and we're going to sing almost persuaded. And while we stand and while we sing this last night, somebody's last opportunity, come while we sing. Let's start moving. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. I don't want to lose the fight.